Good morning. Thank you for that time of prayer. Uh, I was very moving. It's, it's um, powerful for us to experience God's church being with us, behind us, um, and it's super important to us. So thank you for that. I know we have finished announcement pieces, but I want to just quickly encourage you, please, please come to our night of vision and prayer. It, it, let's have a meal together. Let's come in here, and I believe here are some things that God has for us this year. We pray, we worship. If you're new to the church, you're like, I don't know if I should come. We want, the goal is 100%. So that's part of you. So just come. Like, register, be here. We did it, the first time we did this was last year. I thought it was a fantastic night, and it's just an important time for us to be together. So please come. Uh, I don't know if you knew this, Easter is in six weeks from today. Now, that kind of flows off our tongues a little bit different when we go, you know, we're heading into Advent and we're like, Christmas is six weeks from today. We think of all the things we need to do. Um, we think about our schedule filling up. But heading into Easter is a little different rhythm. Lent is a little different rhythm than Advent. It has a different feel to it. And as we enter into this time that's often known as fasting and repentance and preparation, I know for some of you that means deep things. For others of you, you're like, I don't really engage at that level. I hope today kind of landing in the middle of that. Not a, out of ritual, but out of preparation. There's two significant times I would say that our world looks at uh, think the events of the Christian calendar. One would be Christmas. One would be Easter. And there's way less company Lent parties, so you're going to have a little more time this next month to prepare for Easter. Lent is a time when we tend to let go, so I encourage you to be a part of even our, our, what we're doing in March together and discover what it could be about. During this time, we're going to jump in and finish our study in the book of Mark, which we started like two years ago. We start, so we're going to jump back in and we're going to actually finish this series uh, about what he said and what he did, kind of using the timeline as we head into Good Friday and Easter as well. We start today, we engage today with a very large section of Scripture, um, and it can really be all-consuming at times for some people. But today I just want to give you some tools to understand, approach, and apply what I believe might be one of the most difficult passages of Scripture in the New Testament. It's known as the Olivet Discourse. It's called the Olivet Discourse because Jesus gave it on the Mount of Olives. It shows up in other parts of Scripture in Matthew 24 and Luke 21. It's described a little bit differently in those, uh, a little, yeah, just not differently, but there's a few more things added in different Gospels about what the Gospel writers wanted to emphasize. Um, there's no way I can preach this whole thing in one section because there's like, actually in seminary, I, I think there was a whole semester just on the Olivet Discourse, so there's that. But if you do have interest, there's some books I've read in the past if you're interested, one's called The Olivet Discourse Made Easy. That one was awesome because it's made easy. There's also one, Olivet Discourse for Dummies, which is another thing. And there's another one, The Olivet Discourse by Sam Smith. So my goal today is to get you uh, a feel for what this chapter is about. It's going to feel a little bit like a study guide, but I think there's something very specific for God uh, has for you today. So I'm going to read you some sections 
of Mark chapter 13. The words will be up on the screen. I can encourage you to open in your Bible if you want as well. You'll get a feel, if you've never read this before, haven't in a while, what this really is about. Jesus. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings? Replied Jesus. Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but at the end is still to come. Drop down to verse 9. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues on account of me. You will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. Down to verse um, 11. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say what is ever given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Go down to verse 21. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. Drop down to verse 33. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It is like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for today. God, this scripture that is ahead of us, is multi-layered, as you know, Jesus, as you sat there with your disciples, you had a lot of powerful things to say. Help give us some understanding this morning, but also help launch us as we move forward to really being alert and aware and about the right things. In your name, amen. As I said, I think this chapter might be one of the most difficult chapters in the New Testament, especially for the modern reader to understand. This goes back to how important it was for the, to understand what would the original audience have understood. Throughout this chapter, if you were to read it all, and I would encourage you to, there is a lot of ancient Judaism imagery that they would have understood when they heard about it. It's also a scripture that's not presented in a linear way, like it's all in order. So it becomes very strange a lot of times for the modern reader. 
And sometimes it becomes deeply confusing, but it is not a set of Scripture that the Christian should set aside because it's difficult to understand, because it has profound theology around Jesus is coming again. And one of the mistakes we can make as followers of Jesus is to look back at what the things he did and not look forward to his time again. Because his time again, Jesus is saying, should determine how we live now. What I want to do for a few minutes is go wide a little bit, okay? And then I want to grab this beginning piece again, and I want to grab the end piece again. I think there's five threads throughout this chapter that are really important, and it may feel like a guide to you, but I think we need to look at these five threads as we look at this chapter. As we look at what Jesus is saying. The first one is this. There are prophecies of the destruction of Jerusalem in these verses. Jesus foresaw the end of the holy city. And as we shall see, Jesus was right. Jerusalem was ransacked and destroyed in 70 AD. This was like 40 years after his ascension. He was telling his disciples and people, there will be something that will rock you and destroy you in your lifetime. The historian Josephus, who lived during this time, he claimed that 1.1 million people died during this ransacking of Jerusalem. 97,000 others were captured and many others fled to areas around the Mediterranean. Sometimes you can look back to the early church and be like, that must have just been a glorious, pristine, idyllic time. They all got along. Things were great. Because usually when you start something, that's like the best time. But the first 40 years, the 30 AD to 70 AD, uh, Christianity can be summed up by two things. One, explosive growth. And two, continual conflict. There's no such thing as this pristine early church. We find a, a group, a church of people, of fugitives, that, where they experienced attacks and murders and famine and heresy. We find a church that was really marred by internal conflict and separation. Yet, in the midst of even that, which can connect to us today, like things aren't perfect, in the midst of that, Jesus' promise is what? I will build my church. It was during this season, even though there was conflict and outside pressure and actually people in persecution, the gospel spreads to Europe. We see in Acts 8, the gospel gets to Africa. So sometimes we think we need to bring the gospel to Africa. The gospel has been in Africa and through Africa for a th thousands of years. But I think this, even though there was a devastating struggle between the human powers and governments, which is part of that ransacking of Jerusalem with the Roman Empire coming in and trying to squash it, the church continued to grow. There's the power of the Holy Spirit and because the gospel transforms lives. There's so many times we take the battle, and I understand like, this might be a sweeping generalization, but there's times we're fighting the wrong battle, even today. Because God can make his gospel grow. 
The second thing that I see is a thread. There is a warning of persecution to come. Not just destruction that Jesus said his head, but there's actual persecution in Mark 13, 9 to 13. This was for sure was about to happen and it applied to much after that as well. Jesus foresaw the heartbreak and the struggle and the soul-searing experiences of his followers. I think this was so important for him to say because just if he's like, I'm about to go and you're going to experience hardship, I'm telling you it's going to be there. I'm giving you a heads up. But once again, what do we see? Persecution actually spread the gospel. It was because of the persecution of the early church that people fled and suddenly the gospel was growing further and further and further and more and more people. I so often will pray against persecution because it's a tool of the devil. But at the same time, they didn't just say stop it. They said, God, what else can we do? Meaning this, circumstances didn't change the historical transformational event of the death and resurrection of Jesus. It was real to them. It was in them. And even though the outside powers started to press in on them, and this is one of the reasons Jesus said, it's coming, take what I have done in you and bring that to other places. There's a third. There's warnings of the dangers of the last days. All right, so he's like, Jerusalem's right in front of you. You're also going to struggle, but there's a bigger picture of the last days. Now, what are the last days? Sometimes we think the last days is something in the future. The last days are right now and have been. Let me explain this to you. The Apostle John in his first epistle said this, that we now are living in the last days. The last days biblically and scripturally is the time from Jesus' ascension to the time that he comes back. Time didn't start last week, right? There's been humanity for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. So the last days is this phrase that lasts from the time that Jesus ascended until he comes back. John writes this, dear children, this is the last hour saying right now. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. John takes the same thing Jesus says. There's lots of people who say they will be the Messiah and distract you and pull you away. John's calling that person the person who's against Jesus, the Antichrist, will pull you and move you away. And there's a lot of us who are like, man, I know, I've seen movies about this. This seems crazy. This seems hard. This is why Jesus talked about it. So we're definitely in the last days, and Jesus is quite clear. There will be people who adulterate the faith. There will be people who will try to distract you, to try to move you. It seems like he's saying this. People will take the specifics of me and my words and use them to promote something else. Specifically, themselves. Do we ever see this? We do. And we have. I've grown up in the last, how old am I now? I don't know, 27, 57. I've spent my life going to camp. It seems like all these camps I would go to, this was always a part of like, here's what we're seeing. It's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And there'd be some people who are like, it's happening this way. We don't know. But the reality of the distraction and the reality 
of the people promoting themselves, aligning themselves with the work of Jesus, and it is not the work of Jesus. Jesus is saying, the work of me is me, not some other human system. The fourth lens of how to look at it is this. There are warnings of the second coming. Uh, I'll just read this to you from Mark 13. At, at that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. These warnings, these alertingness that Jesus is coming back. That's one of the strangest conversations I have with people who are outside the church. When they ask me, because I have these conversations, Dad, what's going to happen? I'm like, well, Jesus is coming back. And they're like, wait, what? And I know for a lot of believers, it feels a little weird too. Like, well, Jesus is coming back. We know it. We sing it. We believe it-ish. Right? What's that going to be like? Now, there's this day referred to as the day of the Lord. This is one of those deep uh, things that they would have understood as because there's these moments all throughout the Old Testament that kept referring to these imagery of the day of the Lord. It was when God intercedes, it's when God opposes either the literal Babylon structure or structures that set themselves up as a Babylon, where God says, enough is enough, I'm restoring my kingdom, I'm restoring my kingdom, I'm restoring my kingdom. You see that all through the Old Testament where God opposes things and says enough is enough. Sometimes we look at that as horrifying events. How can God be so angry? But it's actually the justice of God and the patience of God that says, enough, enough, enough. And these days, these last, the, the day of the Lord is also a future instance where God once and for all will say, I am bringing them back to my kingdom. The imagery of the day of the Lord and his second coming are intertwined so tightly. It's almost like Jesus at the Passover meal the night before he died when he's talking about the different cups on the table and he's talking about the one of redemption, he's like, this is me. He inserts himself into that story is what Jesus is doing in this very thing. I'm inserting myself the day of the Lord when God makes things right. I'm inserting myself and saying that's also the day I return. This is a powerful, mind-blowing moment for these guys who knew this justice piece. And Jesus is like, that's me. All right. The fifth thing, the way to look at this is there are warnings of the necessity to be on the watch. If we live as believers with the constant possibility of the direct intervention of God, if the times of the seasons are only known to God, then there's a necessity to ever be ready. So what does it mean to be ready? Let's just think about that for a moment. What is it like to be ready for God? Now, if you just take it like, what does it mean if you're having guests over to your house and you feel like you're ready? You may have cleaned your house, maybe, or organized it as best as you could, or you threw everything into a closet and closed the closet. One of those options. You probably maybe bathed your kids or sent them out to a babysitter. Whatever it is, like we're ready for somebody to come. Now some of you, and maybe a lot of you, and it depends kind of where the culture of the area is. I remember when we lived in Hawaii, you needed to be ready at all times, or at least have the heart of readiness, because people just showed up. 
It wasn't like we had a certain time or plan just go, we're here. So you just let them in, which was really my wife's favorite thing about Hawaii. It also gave her great leverage, like keep the house clean at all times, Dale, which she was very appreciative of that. I remember growing up in a certain environment where this was often used as I would look at it as some behavior modification. The phrase I would hear, don't let Jesus catch you doing something you shouldn't do. It was a motivation of how to interact with my girlfriend. So like if you're not doing the right things and you're with your girlfriend and you're kissing and Jesus shows up, he's going to be like, you're not ready to go and he's going to leave you behind. And I'm like, oh. Or if you're in a movie that you shouldn't be in and Jesus shows up, he's going to sit next to you and give you all sorts of shame and blame and be like, really? This is the movie you're watching when I showed up? You should be at home just reading your Bible. I don't know. But that's what I would hear. And I would say those were really effective behavior modifications as a teenager. I think there was times I would leave the house and my mom's like, Jesus might come back tonight. What are you doing? I'm like, hopefully I'm going home with him. And then I went time I said, I don't know, mom, what are you doing? I wasn't allowed to go out that night after that. I think it's a posture, though, of receiving. I think it has probably more to do with our, our posture because the reality is Jesus is with us already. I think that's the awareness more. Like, I'm bringing Jesus into these situations already and how are we navigating those kinds of things? I think the life is with him now so you would actually recognize him maybe when he knocks on the door. It's like, oh, come in. Being ready and helping others to get ready. Just like persecution was the propellant of growth for the early church, I think this idea of being ready and helping others to get ready might be the propellant of growth for today's church. Let me work our way back into this. Let me highlight two things. What actually gets us into this section of Mark? I know we've been away from it for a little while. There's this moment in Mark chapter 9, and I think it's a significant piece. We know it as the transfiguration. Jesus brings a few of his disciples up to this mountain. Suddenly Jesus appears to him in his pre-human and post-resurrection reality. A few others join him on this hill. The disciples get to see all of this. Let me read it to you. And there appeared before them, the disciples, Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. The Bible doesn't tell us what they were talking about, but that is worth the price of admission right there. Peter said to Jesus, because Peter's awesome. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And then it says in quotes, verse 6, he did not know what to say because they were so frightened. So the best thing he came up with is like, let's put up some tents, you know, like shade is good for you guys, even though they were like in their transfigured form, you know, heavenly realms. They're like, it might be hot. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. 
And suddenly when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. So, the historical context in the Old Testament, they were devoted to listen to Moses. They were devoted to listen to Elijah. This is where they got their things from. And then now it's Jesus. And he says, you're so used to hearing all of this and listening to them. And God clarifies, these things just led up to my son. He takes them away. Jesus is the last man standing. And God says, just listen to him. Listening takes being with him and doing what he did. Don't forget that piece. Hang on to that piece. Jesus makes it very clear. The traditions of your past were important. This is the reality. Now I want to read to you what happens right before we get into this chapter. This one is actually a little bit mind-blowing. Listen to the words that flow out of Jesus' mouth through the ears of the disciples and then what comes out of their mouth, which is probably not a lot unlike us. So Jesus is sitting there in the temple. People are giving their offering. And they had like this brass um, cylinder, or let's just say like a massive funnel. That was the tradition. So what you could do is people would literally hear how much money you gave. Because they gave coins. You throw into this thing. It's like clink, 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 clink. I hear that's what it's like in Las Vegas. I wouldn't know. But when you hit it big, it's like clink, 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 whatever. That's what the offering was like. And often people are like, whoa, that was generous. Whoa, that was generous. And then there's a woman that comes up and gives very little. Starts in verse 41. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything all that she had to live on. As then Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Jesus, God makes it very clear. Listen to Jesus. Jesus is giving this massive discourse of what's happening, but at the very beginning, he's like, you want to know what moves heaven? The heart of a person who gives out of their poverty. And out of that, the disciples already go, like, Jesus, see how impressive this temple is? Aren't you must be so happy? This is your home. And he's like, this stuff fades away. This piece here doesn't. The poor from God is to listen to his son because we so quickly are immersed in the sights and sounds of prosperity, the impressive stones of advancement. What we see can make it incredibly difficult to hear. What we see 
can make it incredibly difficult to hear. I'm leaving for Rwanda tomorrow, as you know, and I've shared this with people before. When people ask me, who is the best, most, like, who's the best pastor you know? And I think the question often comes from, like, what podcasts do you listen to? What books have they written? This and that. And I will tell you, and I will tell you again and again, the best pastor I know is Mary, who is a pastor in this little village in Rwanda. Why? She walks with Jesus. It's not because she has this amazing quiet time that I'm like, that's what makes her the best pastor. How she loves, how she serves, how she sees the least of these, how she gives, how she just shows everything like this is who I am, how she loves her kids, how she loves Jesus. There is no doubt. The people in Rwanda that we go to aren't the forgotten people. They're probably the people that are never known in the first place. Mary will not even be known by 99.9% people in her country. She's never had a podcast. She'll probably never write a book. She won't be even known by the village next door. She won't be known by the town that looks down on people out there. But who is she known by? Jesus. There's so many times that we could look at someone like that, even as an American mindset, and go, wow. She has nothing, yet she's so joyful. But we see that because we see joy even when she has nothing. Let me tell you the truth. She doesn't know that she doesn't have things. Because what does she know she has? Jesus. It is striking. She is acutely aware that Jesus is coming back. It's the propellant for her. It seems like Jesus says to me every time I'm with her, stay with me as she is with me. Finishing up, Jesus finished this whole discourse by saying this. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge each with her assigned task and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether it's the evening or midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Jesus gives two examples. One of them is a man goes away. This is not a new concept for him. In Scripture and in, in his stories, he will say things like, a groom went away to prepare a house for somebody. He also says, if I was to go away. So this is not a new idea. He's told parables about this. But a man goes away and he gives, he's done something. He's given what? He's given authority to the people in charge. Says he puts his servants in charge. So Jesus has gone away and he puts gives us authority. He gives everybody a task. And he says, as you have authority and as you have a task, you should be alert and aware. He then drops in this metaphor. Now stick with me. I know this is a lot. He drops in this metaphor that his disciples has not yet experienced. 
It's the metaphor of Gethsemane. It's the garden. It's the space before Jesus died. He's using an analogy of what is going to happen to make sure that we stay alert in all of our things. There are four things in the, in the Roman watch of the night. There's the evening, there's midnight, when the rooster crows, and then at dawn. Evening. There's going to be a time when me and you to the disciples, we're going to be sitting in the upper room. This is the time where I'm about to die. At midnight, it's kind of the general time when Peter makes his first denial. The cock crowing. It's a specific time when Peter has made his third denial. And then dawn, when Jesus was handed over to the Romans. In Mark's story, the tragedies of the disciples in Gethsemane centers around what? How did they navigate this with Jesus? They kept falling asleep. If there's a time when Jesus shows his just frustration, imploring, and he goes back and he's like, I'm about to die and you just keep falling asleep. Our impatience attacks our watching, our guarding, our listening, we drift to things and we start asking ourselves, who really is the Lord of the house? Is the government the Lord of the house? Is it the beautiful stones of advancement is the Lord of the house? Is it the rumors and myths of events? What Jesus is saying, those things are not the Lord of the house. I'm the Lord of the house. I'm the one coming back, so stay alert. Jesus says things like this, the kingdom of God is not, is not outside of you, it's where? inside of you but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well therefore do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself each day has enough trouble of its own as we zero it, i have found to stay awake to stay alert to stay on task I, two things need to happen one i need to tell myself the truth am i awake am i alert Who's the Lord of my house? The second thing is, after I've told myself the truth, I find somebody else who will tell me the truth. And I say to them, this is the truth I'm telling me. Is that the truth? And I find somebody else who will tell me the truth and say, yes, you are staying awake. You are alert. Or like, you're not. My friends, that's what I believe partly what the season of Lent can do. It's an assessment of time. It's an assessment of awareness. It's an assessment of the patterns of our life to say, are we staying awake, alert? Am I about the right things? One of the things that I will say that's so important to me is, what is it that's keeping me up at night? Is it my deep concern for the hearts and souls of others? Or is it the deep concern and worries I've generated myself? I think that is one of the great indicators of whether you're alert and awake to the things of the kingdom or the things of yourself. May Lent be a season where we lay those things before God, repent where we need to repent, and align ourselves so in six weeks from today, when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, we're like, I'm letting go 
for the things you died for me for, and I'm celebrating at the bottom of my heart for all that you have. Let's pray.